Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 219. We'll continue the Scroll of Esther with a brief summary of chapters 4 through 7 and follow with some thoughts about bubble bursting and influence peddling. Previously on Tanakhcast, Ahasuerus, mighty king of Persia, rids himself of his insolent queen and is in need of a replacement. Mordechai the Shushanite Jew has the perfect candidate for the job, his cousin daughter Esther, but only if she keeps her mouth shut about her real identity. And Haman, the king's first minister, publicly plans to avenge his bruised honor at the expense of the Jewish people. All eyes are on Esther. Will she manage the palace intrigue and come out on top, or will she and her people meet the fate of her predecessor? Chapter 4 begins smash cut to Mordechai, who is devastated by the royal pronouncement. He mourns his fate and the fate of his people publicly, crying loudly and bitterly and donning sackcloth and ashes. All the while, Esther is inside the palace, blithely oblivious to the decree. When her servants apprise her of her uncle's disheveledness, quote, the queen was badly shaken. But even then, she's not aware of the reason for her cousin father's state. She sends clothes, but Mordechai will not wear them. Only after Mordechai recounts to Hatach, the king's eunuch, who repeats the news to Esther, does the queen inform Mordechai via servant that there is nothing to be done. Quote, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that every man and woman who comes into the inner court without having been called, the single rule is to put to death unless the king reach out to him the golden scepter. And as for me, I have not been called to come to the king's 30 days now. Mordechai responds again via servant, quote, Do not imagine to escape of all the Jews in the house of the king, for if you indeed remain silent, relief and rescue will not come to the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether for just a time like this you have attained royalty. Esther then tells Mordechai to organize a public fast, no food or water for three days. She too will fast in preparation for her grand gesture. She will go to the king, even though she was not summoned and... If he dies, he dies. Chapter 5 brings us to the most pivotal moment in the scroll, the moment when Esther, in defiance of protocol, seeks an audience with the king, knowing full well that she was not summoned. The consequence for this breach, as she said, is death. Quote, and it happened on the third day that Esther donned royal garb and stood in the inner court of the king's house opposite the king's house, with the king sitting on his royal throne in the royal house opposite the entrance to the house. And it happened when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his eyes, and he reached out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. Without any guidance from Mordechai, Esther unfolds a plot of her own. She invites the king and Haman to a wine banquet specially prepared for the king. The king, though portrayed most of the time as a buffoon, is wise to the ruse. The queen wants something. So he waits for the time of the banquet to press the issue. At the banquet, Esther says, quote, My petition and my request, if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I shall do according to the king's bidding. Another banquet. 
Clearly, Haman thinks, there's some big announcement coming, and clearly it involves him, because otherwise, why would the queen make such a big fuss and show of it? As Haman heads home, quote, happy and of good cheer, he runs smack into Mordechai, sitting all sad and glum at the royal gate. And not only that, Mordechai, besides being a bummer, won't bow down before him. Haman bottles his rage. He knows that his time and Mordechai's will come, and it's only a matter of days. And he spells it all out for his wife Zeresh when he returns home, how the queen is no doubt planning something wonderful for him, and his triumphant victory is mere moments away. At which point Zeresh suggests that Haman hasten the victory by erecting a stake 50 cubits high upon which Mordechai will be impaled. A stellar idea indeed, and Haman has the stake prepared. It's not looking good for our heroes. That night, Ahasuerus cannot sleep. He orders his servant to bring the Book of Acts to be read aloud to him. The first entry recounts how Mordechai foiled an assassination plot against him. Ahasuerus wonders aloud, quote, What honor and grandeur were done for Mordechai on account of this? When the attendant says nothing, the king leaps from his bed and summons whichever courtier happens to be nearby, and it just so happens that Haman was on his way to ask the king if he could start the genocide early by impaling Mordechai. When the king asks, quote, What should be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Haman thinks, well, why would the king be asking me this question unless he desires to honor me? So Haman lays it on thick, quote, The man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring royal raiment that the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and set a royal crown on his head, and give the raiment and the horse into the hands of a man of the king's nobles, the courtiers, and let them dress the man whom the king desires to honor, and ride him on the horse through the city square, and call out before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. The king responds, That's a great idea! And tells Haman to get all of that stuff organized for Mordechai. So Haman organizes the clothing and the horse, gets Mordechai dressed and parades him through the city square, and then goes back to his wife, distraught and despondent. He tells her and his crew about his reversal of fortune, and they tell him the jig is up. Mordechai the Jew is on the rise, and it looks like you, Haman, are on the decline. But before he can process this turn of events, there's a knock at the door. The king's servants have arrived to take him to Queen Esther's banquet. How Haman turns his frown upside down for the party is a wonder, but he puts on a brave face for the king and queen. Queen Esther, on the other hand, is still all frowns. The king asks, quote, what is your petition, Queen Esther, and it will be granted to you, up to half the kingdom, and it will be done. At which point, Queen Esther drops the bomb. Quote, if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me in my petition and my people's in my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be wiped out. And had we been sold to be male slaves and slave girls, I would have remained silent, for the foe is not worth bothering the king. The king is aghast. Quote, who is it, and where is he whose heart has prompted him to do this? At which point, Esther turns and points to Haman. Haman freaks out, and the king storms out in a rage. 
which gives Haman a second to plead with Esther for his life, to fall at her feet and beg for mercy. But when the king returns from his moment to collect himself, he finds, quote, Haman has fallen on the couch where Esther was. The king is now apoplectic. Quote, is it also to force the queen with me in the house? Ahasuerus gives the word, and Harbona, the king's eunuch, drags Haman outside. And Haman is impaled on the stake constructed for Mordechai. One of the many things I enjoy about uh, Tanakhcast is the opportunity to revisit texts we've all read a hundred times and look at them with new eyes. Like the section of Genesis where the story of Noah ends with a rainbow and all the animals scampering off to resume their lives in a fresh green earth. Or the part of Genesis where young Avram smashes the idols in his father's idol shop. Or getting into the latter portions of the ancient chronology, the section of the Tanakh that tells about the miracle of the oil in the temple after Judah and the Maccabees defeat Antiochus' armies. I don't know if the right word to describe it is unsettling, but it's weird to discover that the Hebrew school versions of our stories leave out key details or distort or just embroider stories whole cloth. The scroll of Esther is a big offender in this regard, or more like the teachers of the scroll of Esther are big offenders, as Purim is definitely amenable to being packaged as a kid's holiday, you know, as costumes and treats and noisemaking. Many a synagogue use Purim as an opportunity to throw a full-fledged carnival for the kiddies. It's fun for the whole family, well, except for the impaling. As we know, the scroll of Esther as much as it has those carnivalesque elements to it, it's also dark and troubling. Even the most Disneyest of Disney movies doesn't threaten its protagonists with genocide. Well, maybe Pocahontas does, sort of, but that's more implied than explicit. And it doesn't actually portray its villains being impaled. There too, the villain's ruin is more implied than explicit. The Scroll of Esther pulls no punches in this regard. And one aspect of the story that is often overlooked is the dynamic between Mordechai and the corridors of power in Shushan, which could easily be read as a primer for diaspora Jews managing up. In the previous episode, I discussed how Mordechai instructed his cousin daughter to keep her Jewishness quiet, not because there was any hint that her identity would hobble her chances at winning Shushan's next top model, but because that piece of information might be leveraged to protect the Persian Jewish community in a moment of crisis, which came upon the Jewish community suddenly and without warning with Haman's genocidal intentions and the king's buffoonish enabling. So perhaps we can chalk up the happy ending to Mordechai's four-dimensional chess playing, except for one thing. The very people that could undo the evil decree had no idea that it was happening. They were living inside a bubble, vibing in their own lush echo chamber. A similar phenomenon is at work in most republics, monarchies, and dictatorships. The people in power inhabit a space, be it inside the DC Beltway, Parliament Hill in Ottawa, the Rechavia neighborhood in Israel, or Westminster in the UK. All the people these folks hobnob with are all part of the same political class, sharing roughly the same political ideology, or at least 
regarded as a form of kayfabe to be performed for the masses, but not necessarily to be embodied in real life. They don't feel the pinch of, say, increased grocery prices or rising housing costs or the tedium of waiting in the queue for anything, really, the way that most people do. It's just not part of their experience. I mean, I couldn't tell you how much a gallon of milk costs specifically, but I do know how much I spend on a week's worth of groceries. All of which is to say that a person who carries on in a space where these everyday matters are of no consequence, they live very different lives than the rest of us. And the scroll tells us this too. Chapter 3 concludes as follows, quote, The couriers went out post-haste on the royal mission, and the decree was proclaimed in the fortress Shushan. The king and Haman sat down to feast, but the city of Shushan was dumbfounded. One could easily imagine a similar scene unfolding in Washington, D.C., with a decree going out from the head of Homeland Security about managing the border, which might involve men on horseback whipping refugees or locking up kids in cages before heading off to Fiola for dinner. And Mordechai knows this. His reaction to the decree, while a bit over the top, was sincere and well within the bounds of traditional Jewish practice. He arrives at the palace gates, the place where he lounged to get news of his cousin daughter Esther in the contest, and where he overheard the plot being laid against Ahasuerosh. The palace gates were not simply the entrance portal to the palace. Today, we would use different language to describe the space where individuals have access, however fleeting, to the people in power. That space traditionally, or at least since the 19th century, was known as the lobby. And one lobby in specific, that of the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C., apparently in 1850, U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant would frequent the hotel, where he would sit in a leather chair in the lobby and drink some brandy while smoking a cigar. Folks would inevitably happen across him there, and since they were talking, how about this and how, you know, you know how the rest goes. However, the Oxford English Dictionary has an instance of the word lobby that goes back to 1640 and explicitly defines it as a place for legislators and members of the public to meet and discuss matters. In other words, Mordechai was a lobbyist, and he parlays his position as influence peddler to sway events when he can inside the palace amongst people that have no idea what's going on outside the palace. So there he is sitting at the palace gates in full morning regalia. Jews across Persia are doing the same, but inside the palace, life goes on as usual. Lavish meals are prepared, unguents are being dispensed, Eventually, word reaches the queen, and the scroll tells us, quote, the queen was greatly agitated. But what word reached her? Is she upset because Haman decreed a death sentence on the empire's Jews, or because Mordechai is sitting in rags at the palace gates? Surely she understands what sitting in sackcloth represents. She's Jewish, isn't she? I mean, that's typical garb for mourning. Unless even this item of news has somehow been distorted or tweaked or changed for the queen's consumption. Esther instructs her servants to bring Mordechai a change of clothes, so it's clear that what she understood was happening with her cousin father was not an act of public mourning, but perhaps the Persian equivalent of a mud-ruined pair of slacks or coffee-stained shirt. When Mordechai refuses the new clothes, Esther realizes something more is amiss. So she sends Hatach, to speak to Mordechai and deliver the news directly to her. And Mordechai is ready. He not only recounts the details of Haman's genocidal plot to Hatach, he comes with receipts. 
Mordechai, quote, also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Shushan for their destruction. He bade him show it to Esther and inform her and charge her to go to the king and to appeal to him and to plead with him for her people. Once Hatach delivers this dossier to Esther, she, the bubble dweller, cannot believe it. Don't you know how life in the bubble works? I can't just go to the king whenever. There are rules. He has to summon me. If I go on my own volition, I will be executed. To which Mordechai responds, Don't think that being inside the bubble will save you. You're a Jew like me, and Haman's decree applies to us both equally. But, quote, Perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. In other words, I have exhausted all of my lobbyist powers. It's all up to you now. Only now does Esther realize that the world is bigger than her bubble, but that reality has come crashing down upon her full force. But rather than fall into despair, she moves into action. Quote, go, assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast in my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Then I shall go to the king, though it is contrary to the law. And if I am to perish, I shall perish. Well, we know that she doesn't, and she succeeds in using her position in the palace to protect the Jews of the empire. Which, I guess, is a lesson for us all. As a minority scattered across the planet, no matter where we are, we must ensure access to the palace gates with ears open and cards kept close to the chest because who knows when our skills or connections or information might prove useful to those in power and thus stave off disaster for our people. This talent has served us well. Mordechai was not the first Jewish lobbyist in the Tanakh, nor was he the last in Jewish history. But today the term Jewish lobby has other associations, specifically of worldwide Jewish conspiracies to control the levers of government. It, like everything else associated with Jews and the Jewish people, is often weaponized by anti-Semites. But like most charges leveled against Jews by anti-Semites, there's nothing inherently sinister in the Jewish community seeking to exert some political influence. Every community does it. It's only a problem when we do it. That's Haman's argument in its simplest form, which is why Mordechai showed no respect for him from the get-go and would not bow down before him under any circumstances, and why Mordechai had to use all of his lobbyist tricks to shake his cousin daughter out of her complacency into action to foil Haman's plot. Which, thankfully, she did. like we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 220, when we conclude the Scroll of Esther with chapters 8 through 10.